This is Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. In this series, we revisit our favorite discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series events. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. And each week, we'll introduce you to the industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors running everything from breakout SaaS companies to professional racing teams and beyond. I am really, really excited for this conversation. You'll hear ideas that will inspire you to overcome obstacles. There's no construction manual when you start your first company. Become a better leader and try new things. When I see a new product category that someone says, that's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Because after all, good leaders are always learning. You are not expected to know the answer. Instead, you're expected to learn the answer. Get ready to build better habits. We are what we repeatedly do. And embrace conflict. Conflict is healthy. Conflict should be expected. With inspirational interviews from High Alpha. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind. My name is Catherine Martin, and I'm on the marketing team here at High Alpha, and I'm super excited to kick off season two of Speaker Series Rewind. For those of you that are new to the podcast, in this series, we revisit High Alpha Speaker Series events featuring industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors sharing their stories with both the High Alpha Network and the broader tech ecosystem. And season two is all about discussions with some of the industry's top investors. And I thought a great way to kick off the season would be to start with one of our more recent investor interviews featuring Carlota Siniscalco, principal at Emergence Capital and a member of High Alpha's board. And Carlota sat down with Scott Dorsey back in August of 2021 to unpack her experience as an enterprise technology venture investor and also her mission to elevate underrepresented founders in the world of tech, VC, and entrepreneurship. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. All right, Loti, let's get started. So hi, hi everyone. I'm uh, Scott Dorsey from High Alpha. And on behalf of the team, welcome to our monthly speaker series. This is our 55th speaker series and in uh, yearn for a treat today with our, our wonderful guest Loti from Emergence. Uh, quick uh, shout out to Silicon Valley Bank and Ice Miller, our sponsors for making this uh, this program available. And uh, we were really grateful, really grateful for their support. It's a real a real honor for me to interview uh, Loti today, our newest board member, by the way. Uh, Loti is a principal with Emergence Capital, our uh, our lead investor and uh, kind of our early early believer and partner as we were starting High Alpha Studio six years ago. We're incredibly grateful for their their vision, their friendship, their partnership. And uh, and Loti has just joined our board, which we're really, really thrilled about. And you'll hear you'll hear a little more about Loti's uh, background here in a moment. But uh, Loti has an undergraduate degree from Wharton, MBA from Stanford, joined Emergence in uh, 2018. And, and prior to Emergence, had a really impressive background in uh, investment banking and, and private equity, and also, also kind of a, an operating role or two along the way. So Hello to you. Without further ado, uh, welcome to the uh, High Alpha family. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me. Good morning, everybody. Thrilled, uh, thrilled to be here. We're going to have some fun here. It is really stormy in Indianapolis. So any of you that are here in Indy, you know that we're, uh, we're right in the middle of a big thunderstorm. So I thought I'd throw the uh, AirPods on and hopefully block out a little thunder in the background. So we'll, uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that everything... Uh, Goes smoothly. You might see some flashes of lightning here in the background, <laughs> but uh, but Loti, let's. Uh, we'll, we'll, we're just gonna have a lot of fun with this conversation today, and I'm um, eager for our community to get to know you better and learn more about emergence and how you think about investing, and you know, and also you know how you think about 
diversity, equity, and inclusion is a topic I know you're really passionate about. And, and you and I have already had some pretty amazing conversations about how to how to kind of best support underrepresented founders and and uh, and what the future of venture capital looks like. So we have we have a lot of amazing topics to start with. But but if if you'd be so kind, why don't we just start with maybe a little bit more about you and and your background and what led you into the world of venture capital? Absolutely. So I, as, as I'll speak, you'll notice my accent, which I've been trying to get rid of for 35 years, but failed. I'm Italian. <laughs> I know I don't hide it too well. Don't, don't get rid of your accent. It's beautiful. You should <laughs> stick with it. I was actually born and raised in Italy. Uh, and I was born you know, in, in, in a place where venture is really not something that people think about. The, the venture capital community in Italy and in Milan is especially you know, when I was born, was essentially non-existent. So I, I, you know, was born and raised there. And then I came to the U.S. for college. And kind of through that experience of being exposed at what was going on at Wharton and hearing what other people were doing, I realized what venture was. And I couldn't believe that there was a job that would allow you to work with entrepreneurs, alongside entrepreneurs. And and at the same time, kind of exercise the investor skill set. So actually, when I was 19, I was in college, I went on the internet to find the listserv of every venture capital fund in Italy, which was not a long list. (laughs) But I literally sent each of them a cold email saying, hi, you don't know me. My name is Carlotto Siniscalco. I'm I'm a sophomore at Wharton. And I'm interested about venture capital. I don't, I don't know what it is. Will you let me intern with you? A mm. couple of them responded. And I ended up doing my first internship in VCE in Milan in 2008 or 2009. And, and even as early as the ecosystem was, I just became fascinated with the, this possibility. So after graduation, I took on the more traditional path of investment banking at Goldman Sachs mm. and then private equity investing at Advent International. That was, you know, more of the beaten path. And as an immigrant in this new country, I wanted to feel that I had a strong safety net of, okay, if everything goes bad, if everything goes badly, I'll have at least a strong set of brands to fall back on. But through that experience, I I really consolidated my belief that venture was going to be the right path for me. So I took advantage of an experience uh, at Stanford, getting my MBA to really pivot into a full-time role in VC. First, at a VC fund called Rivet, I was I had had experience in fintech for many years at Advent, and Rivet is a fintech VC. And then, uh, as soon as I realized, okay, I'm in the Bay Area, I really like what I'm doing. I want to find a home for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Venture is a long-term business; it's not something you can really think of in two-year increments. I, I started to look for a home and was really lucky to end up at Emergence. And um, very, I feel very lucky to, to be building my career here and learn from some of the best VCs in the Valley, all the general partners that I work with. Loti, that's awesome. That's awesome. Congratulations on, uh, on your success and your journey. And, and super impressive that your break into venture started with, uh, with cold outbound, right? Cold email. And that could be an interesting parallel for what it takes for entrepreneurs to catch the attention of venture firms as well. I'm kind of curious to learn a little more about your, your MBA experience. Did you roll from undergrad right into graduate school or did you have a, a little bit of work experience in between? And then you're just kind of curious what, 
what what led you down that path and what what do you what do you feel your biggest takeaways were from getting your MBA? I have a lot of kind of young uh, professional, you know, friends and colleagues who, you know, ask me about the MBA path. I, I I went to Kellogg, had a wonderful experience. It's such an individual decision, but I'd love for you to expand a little bit more on kind of what what led you to Stanford and, and what you gained out of the experience. Absolutely. So I, I, I did my undergrad at, at Wharton, right? And then I, after Wharton, I spent five years actually working in, in the city of New York in traditional finance. And one thing that has always been a constant in, in my life was kind of a thirst for learning and just learning things that were kind of outside of my comfort zone. So after four years of undergrad plus five years of working, nine years in the East Coast, being immersed in kind of traditional finance, mm-hmm. I started to feel an itch to learn something new. And mm. through some of my investments at Advent, I got exposed to technology, uh, specifically fintech. And I wanted to see if that maybe was a better, you know, better path for me that felt more authentic to who I am, that got me more excited than investing, you know, sleepy payments processing companies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so I knew I had to get out of New York. So my approach to the MBA was actually less about, okay, I need to get my MBA. It was more about, I want to immerse myself in a new environment where I can learn something completely new. And I think that's the West Coast. So I was either looking for a job in a tech company or to attend Stanford, which was, you know, it's the best program out here in, in the West Coast. And it just happened that I got into Stanford before I found the job that I fell in love with. Mm. And boy, like, I think it was one of the best decisions of my life. I, I feel I grew more in those two years at Stanford than in the prior five, year, five years combined. And that's just because my paradigm shifted. So what I thought was success, which was stay and climb the corporate ladder at Goldman Sachs until you make the millions, work crazy hours with, you know, all that, you know, lack of joy that comes with it. <laughs> that was what success looked like. And then I come to the West Coast and I breathe the air of changing and creation and entrepreneurship. And wow, I, I, I just got hooked on it. So I feel very grateful that I got to learn from all these entrepreneurs here. The density of, of, of Stanford is, was something very special. And, you know, not last but not least, I had a ton of fun. <laughs> I was working so hard in my 20s. I could really use a couple of years to refresh and, and have fun and build relationships that to this day are some of the most meaningful of my life. At my wedding, half the people were folks from my MBA class. Uh, and they're still some of the closest people in my life. Lodi, that's awesome. What a, what, a, what a really wonderful experience. I'd love for you to expand a little bit on just uh, the Bay Area mindset, like the Silicon Valley mindset. You know, um, you know most of, you know, we, we invest in, in companies, you know, all around the U.S. and, and all around the world. Many of our studio companies are in, 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 in Indianapolis, and you know we have strong kind of Midwestern values and phenomenal universities and a lot of real pluses of starting a company in the, in the middle of the country. But I also like to think about how to sprinkle a little Silicon Valley you know, magic and ambition you know, on, on, on our startups and our founders. And I, I'd love for you to expand maybe just on like the mindset, like the ethos uh, of, of the Bay Area and what... In, in your opinion, like what are the positives? What are the what are the ingredients that lead to uh, amazing founders and, and big companies and big outcomes? Yeah, I'll start by saying that there's a lot of positives about the way entrepreneurship works in the Bay Area. 
There's also some things that are less positive, and I'm happy to expand on that afterwards as well. As someone that comes not from the Bay Area, and, you know, Italy, I think, in a way, is fairly similar to to the Midwest in that it has very strong family values and doesn't necessarily run on the same thirst for faster, go, 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 the same way as, you know, East Coast or West Coast really work. So I really appreciate kind of both uh, approaches. What I think is special about the West Coast and about the Valley in particular is that you are immersed 24-7 entrepreneurship. You're crossing the street and you're hearing someone talk about how they're structuring their sales comp for the new AEs that they just hired. And then you go and get a coffee and you're waiting in line and you hear a VC talking about the term sheet that she's about to issue to some. So you're just learning all the time. And I think there's some real value in that, especially if you're early on in your career. So in a way, finding a way to create the same density the way you're doing is absolutely key because if you're able to increase the learning curve early in your career, you'll you'll reap the the results very, very obviously. And then I think there's also kind of, you know, the examples. You are, you, there's a lot of very successful entrepreneurs that made it here. They're still here. You drive by San Francisco, you see the Salesforce Tower and you have a very visual image in your mind. Okay, this is what creating an amazing software company is going to look like one day for me. So I think that those are some of the, some of the positives. That's good. Okay, I, of course, I have to ask, what are, what are some of the downsides? <laughs> yeah. So like, any th- like anything, excesses are always something you um, want to be wary of. Yeah. Um, also, like not every not every business needs to raise venture capital money. I'm a VC, so I'm really not supposed to say that, but it, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, there's plenty of wonderful businesses that are gonna do just great, either being bootstrapped or raising a small amount of capital, and you can create a wonderful life for yourself by starting these businesses. And I think in the valley sometimes that gets lost because mm-hmm. there is this concept of being successful only if you raise hundreds of millions of millions of dollars in venture money. And that can become kind of a, a blind spot. So sometimes I see folks that are kind of down the path where instead they could have just had a much easier life if they decided to run more of a family of a lifestyle business. And then you know the other thing that I'll say is and which ties into the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece. Yeah. There's a venture and entrepreneurship are a relationship business at the end. Mm -hmm. You connect with people that you know, you invest in people that you know, you hire people that you know. And there's there's a familiarity bias where you try to reach out to people who are the most similar Mm -hmm. to you. And as a result, if you're not an in group, it's easy to be left behind. I can tell you as an Italian in the Bay Area, yeah. not a lot of us, really right. not. <laughs> so has, you know, sometimes I kind of have to elbow my way through to say, hey, I belong here as well. Hmm. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of other people feel the same way. So, you know, that's that's something that I, I think it will change over time. And I'm passionate about helping. But it's a reality of how the valley works today. 
Yeah, that's a great perspective. Really helpful insight. And I think as we're as we're building companies, you know, Loti, it's we'll we'll look to you know kind of uh, adopt the positives, you know, that uh, an ecosystem like Silicon Valley or the Bay Area offers, and uh, and maybe leave the negatives behind. And you know, I've always thought that kind of regardless of where you're building a company, you need to focus on what are the what are the unique strengths, you know, of, of the region and the city and the area in which you're building the company. And then today location matters, you know, a whole lot less, you know, than it did even 12 months ago. So we have, we have so many of our companies that are, you know, building a hub in one area, but in many ways are building a virtual company and just finding the best talent, regardless of location. And that, that opens up just such a world of possibilities. And I also think can kind of break through some of the bias, you know, that you're mentioning and, and some of the limitations that perhaps have been in place in the past. So this might be a nice way for us just to bridge a bit more into diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, I, I'd love for you to Kind of share with our audience today, you know what what work you're doing in emergence and how you're thinking more broadly across the industry of how to be a change agent, you know, and how to create more opportunities both on the investing side as well as as well as the entrepreneurial side. Yeah. So there's there's so much to do. If you yeah. look at the world of entrepreneurship, such a small percentage of the dollars are allocated to female founders, underrepresented founders. And the sad reality is that COVID actually made it worse because a lot of women mm. um, had to stay back. And we actually took back almost 10 years of progress just in 2020 alone in terms of percentage of dollars that were allocated to diverse founders. So I, now more than ever, I feel a really strong desire to do something about this and work with many, many, many other people who are just as passionate as me, if not more, to level out the playing field. So I think the first problem is what I was mentioned earlier about the fact that VC is relationship-based. And, and it's just so easy. If you look at my inbox, the number of companies that just reach out to me cold on a daily basis is you know, 10, 12, sometimes 20. And so we as VCs have to develop some sort of heuristic, some sort of shortcut in our brain mm. that allows us to quickly parse through what's good, what's not good. And as, as hard as you can try to be unbiased, it will happen that you will use a familiarity bias to judge a company. So I am the first one to be victim yeah. of it. If every time I have an Italian founder email me, not very often, but every time <laughs> I take the call because it moves up to the top of your list. Yeah. Right. And not all of those companies are great. So if you take this bias that I have and you apply to a white man that went to Stanford, like, of course, they're going to be more likely to take the emails and calls from other people similar to them. So I think the first thing that needs to happen is try to put more diverse people at the VC level so that they can tap into their own network mm. and elevate the companies that are actually worth elevating to the rest of the partnership. So that's, that's a hard thing to do. VC is notoriously a place where there's not a lot of jobs available and it's a slow moving industry in general. It takes a long time before you become a general partner. And so that's, that's kind of issue number one. And I and Emergence is doing a lot in terms of thinking about hiring the new generation of investors that are more diverse, educating more and more younger students to what venture is about, 
doing things like we're doing right now so that yeah. people might get inspired and say, oh, you know what, maybe VC could be a route for me. Mm-hmm. Even though it was never really, you know, no one ever told me. So that's, that's something that um, I feel really strongly about. And then there's the entrepreneurship piece. Um, that means providing more tools to diverse entrepreneurs to realize the company they have, they have in mind. A great tool is, you know, the studio model, frankly. Right, right, right. Um, I think it, it just serves so well, so well. You, you can be born in a family that was a family of entrepreneurs and they went to Stanford and by the age of 18, you already know how to run a business or you can become part of a network like High Alpha and learn exactly the same things, but you didn't have to be born in privilege this, the same way. So I, I am very excited to work with you to continue to find folks like this. And then, you know, on, on my end, I've been trying to, to nurture groups of potential operators, mm-hmm. potential entrepreneurs who maybe down the road will want to start their own business. These are earlier stage people who might still be working at big companies or might still be in school and uh, connecting them with entrepreneurs, having them share their story, having them share how they went about making the decision into becoming an entrepreneur and getting all the questions answered that otherwise will prevent them from really making the leap. Yeah, so good. That's so good, Loti. I know you're part of the Kaufman Fellows Program, which I think our, our group would really love to hear a little more about. I'd love it if you'd share a little more about Kaufman and uh, you know how how that's maybe helped you kind of on your learning journey uh, toward VC? Yeah. So for, for those that don't know, Kaufman is a, is a program, it's a fellowship. You essentially apply to be part of it. And it's specifically for venture capitalists. And it's for VCs that are kind of up and coming, but they're not quite, you know, at the top yet. And the point is to try to create camaraderie and learning in within this group, both with, between each other, but also oftentimes they'll bring wonderful speakers that are very experienced in VC. And in a kind of ask me anything type of format in a Kaufman confidential container, they'll share with us kind of what are their uh, stories and what are their recommendations for becoming a successful VC. And I think it's so important. VC can be such a lonely job if you are in a place that's not collaborative. I'm lucky that I work at, at an emergence, which is a highly, highly, highly collaborative shop. We make decisions with what we call unanimous enthusiasm. Hmm. We are always talking to one another every day. But it's rare. Most VCs are not like that. Most VCs are you, you, you eat what you kill, you hunt by yourself. Hmm. And so creating a community of other people that are not in your firm that you can connect with is key to continue your learning curve. I actually sourced my first deal through the Kaufman network. Nice. Uh, a friend surfaced a, 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 an entrepreneur based in Utah, by the way, so not in a typical, uh, mm-hmm. in a typical area that we'd look at. And uh, I fell in love with it. And that was my first investment a year and a half ago. So I... Absolutely recommend whatever is your craft to try to be part of peer groups to and continue your learning and to provide emotional support as well. Um, it's so true. It's so true. Lodi, peer to peer learning, coaching, support, remarkably important for, 
for investors and certainly for, for CEOs and entrepreneurs or any field you're in, if you're running marketing, running customer success, building those peer relationships where you can, you can share ideas and confidence and challenges and struggles with one another. So valuable. I mean, so valuable. One of the, one of the aspects of the Kaufman curriculum I was really impressed with and even I was a little surprised with was the starting point really is around understanding yourself and a lot of insp- like introspection and thinking about what's your zone of genius and how do you differentiate yourself and where can you add the most value and you know, I'd be curious for maybe you to kind of expand on that a little bit. And why don't we bridge that into kind of what, what you look for in an entrepreneur or a business that you might want to invest in? No, it's such a good question. And, and this ties a bit into also what I learned from Stanford as well. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny, only kind of later in my 20s uh, and through Stanford and through Kaufman, I really realized the power of deep self-awareness. And in the context of VC, where you have, especially now, so much capital chasing so many companies, finding a way to stand out is absolutely key. Otherwise, you're just yeah. going to be the VC that writes the most expensive term sheet and runs around like a chicken with their, with their head. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. And so for me, the differentiation really is like, let's take a deep look at the mirror. Let's really understand what are my strengths. And let's double down on that, on that, as opposed to let's try to feel my weaknesses. Because the truth is, if I start looking on Twitter or I start looking on LinkedIn or I start looking around and seeing what are all these amazing VCs doing and I am trying to match up with them, I'm never going to keep up. Because everyone's going to be better at something. So I, what I can do is become the best at my own individual strengths. And that's a, a journey that I'll continue to be on for the rest of my life. For me, that, that kind of means being able to make those authentic connections with, with the CEOs and, and making sure that I, fee, I am perceived as the most important, most trustworthy partner that they have and that they can call me when things go well, but most importantly, when things are absolutely terrible. I want to be that emotional support for them. I want to be that kind of grounding force. I think I've, I, that's something I naturally do with my friends and with people in my life. So I, I'm, I'm trying to really expand on that and tying that to what you're asking about what do I look for in, in, in entrepreneurs. That self-awareness is key. Mm-hmm. That self-awareness is key yeah. because A, it's a signal of growth mindset, which in my mind is the most important indicator around whether or not you're going to be a successful entrepreneur. And let me just expand on that real quick. Please do. No matter how great you think you have everything figured out as, as you're starting out, the entrepreneur that you are when you're raising your pre-seed is not the entrepreneur you are when you're going to be going public. You will have to grow. There's going to be growing pains. It's going to be painful. It's going to be exciting. But you need to have the thirst for continuing to improve yourself. And I think that comes from really knowing who you are and, and being committed to the path of personal growth. We internally at Emergence call that either coachability mm. or just coach, like growth mindset. And, and so I go pretty, pretty deep during my diligence processes to try to figure that out. Not just in, okay, let's spend time one-on-one and let me ask you questions about that but also doing a lot of background research and asking 
calling your college roommate and ask them what whether mm-hmm. they think you are someone with a growth mindset or finding someone that used to work for you and see if you showed up with a growth mindset to them as well. Uh, have you have you really tracked down a college roommate? Oh yeah. For a reference call you have? Oh my gosh, that's so impressive. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can write really persuasive LinkedIn messages. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. I think your 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 Twitter bio is awesome. I was going to read it real quick. Likely the least active VC on Twitter, too busy working and being a mom. I invest in B2B software and emergence. Like that's awesome. I love like that's complete self-awareness and just kind of netting it right out. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I I when I first joined as a emergence, I felt the the pressure. Oh my gosh, everyone is on Twitter. I need to find something cool and smart to say. And the truth is, I have a one and a half year old. You know, I have a busy social life. I have a lot of other interests outside of VC. I don't have time. And honestly, I don't know if it's because I'm English as second language or what. I'm not that good at writing like smart, <laughs> you know, 100 characters sentences. So I just choose not to consume that, not to, not to write, but also not to consume it. And it's been one of the best decisions I've done for my own mental health, frankly. Good for you. Good for you. And just completely like playing to your strengths. I think... That growth mindset is a, is a really, really powerful concept. You know, Lotsi, you've mentioned a couple of times along your journey here, cold outreach, like not being afraid uh, to take initiative, be creative, ask for help. And I, you know, let's, let's, let's bridge off of that into advice you might have for an entrepreneur in, in fundraising and building venture relationships. You know, there's, there's kind of a, a belief out there that you need a warm intro mm-hmm. in order to, you know, meet with a credible VC. Is that true? You know, what, what emails maybe that come across your desk cold, you know, catch your attention. And then also kind of curious, do you, do you recommend entrepreneurs build potential investor relationships well in, va- well in advance of needing to raise capital or are they better off just kind of spinning up those relationships when they're actually already in a process? I have a very strong point of view. Oh, I'd love to hear it. All right, perfect. <laughs> so most venture relationships, so if you're an entrepreneur and you're seeking out a venture relationship, there's a very high chance that's going to be a seven to 10 year relationship, which is more than most marriages, by the way. <laughs> so would you choose a life partner in a week? Probably not. In fact, there's a TV show about that. And that's, that's not, that really not how you want to make decisions about your life. So I really believe that you need to start early in building those relationships and you need to be really strategic. It's not something that can just happen. Say, oh, someone introduced me to this VC. Let me just have a random chat with them. You, as soon as you know what the direction of the company is and what type of businesses, what type of market you want to build towards, you can really quickly understand who are the people that can bring value to you. And you can start assembling a, a wish list, a dream list of people that if you had a magic wand, you could get on your board. And, you know, you can have tier, tier A, tier one, tier two, tier three. And, and what I really recommend is for people to, in general, always be cultivating their tier ones, but then when the process starts to be really strategic about first pitching the tier three, then pitching the tier two. And once you have absolutely perfected your pitch, once you have perfected the answers to the questions that the tier three and the tier two are asking you, then you go out and pitch the mm-hmm. tier one and blow them out of the water. No one is born great at pitching, literally nobody. Anyone that tells you is lying. They just practice a lot. So be strategic about how you're going to practice. 
and I, I really see the results. And I often give up coaching when I see companies that are pitching me in a way that doesn't work. I literally stop them and say, this is a different way you could have said it that would have been more impactful. Okay, so, that's, ama- that's amazing advice. Can I, can let me drop one extra question? Practice. How much did an entrepreneur practice the pitch itself, like a, working on the deck and a tight deck versus practicing Q&A? I'd say from my experience, there tends to be an underinvestment on the Q&A side from a prep perspective. Yeah. So uh, when I actually, when I was an investment banker, 21 year old, my job for my first six months was to keep track of the questions that the investors were asking yes. clients. Yes, yes. Really there with a notepad, writing the questions, and then we were pitching multiple investors in a day. And if a question was asked more than once, I would highlight it in yellow and come up with bullet points of what was the perfect answer to that. Now, that's kind of a Goldman Sachs type of service. Right. You can absolutely do that yourself. There's no reason not to. You will remember what were the questions that kind of caught you off guard. And you can prepare. You can prepare slides in the appendix. You can prepare talking points that make you sound like, oh, yeah, I know this off the top of my head. No one will know that someone just asked you the question the day before and that you prepare for it. I, I really... It's, it's a bit of a letdown when I ask an entrepreneur a question and they don't have it kind of handy. And, and certain questions are kind of expected. Questions around market size, questions around your financials. If I ask you what your gross margin for a specific product is, you, you have to know that off the top of your head. And investors know that there are certain questions that require separate research, but I really encourage to do that exercise of keeping track of, track of the questions and come up with great answers. That's so good, Loti. You're actually bringing, uh, bringing back some flashback memories for me of our IPO Roadshow. Because you're right. If we, IPO Roadshow, we, we documented every question we ever asked you know, across over 100 meetings. And you'd, you'd really, really work on the, on, the, on the documentation and looking for the repetitive themes and, and making sure you're just airtight on those answers. And it kind of nothing caught you by surprise. So that that level of prep is that's inspiring. That's a, it's really, that's really a good goal to, to shoot for. Yeah. Really, how, how about, how about when you're kind of building a CEO relationship, how is it, how important it is, is it for you to meet the leadership team, you know, meet co-founders, meet the broader leadership team versus the CEO kind of carrying all the water, if you will, on, on the fundraising process. So I'll, I'll say, I'll caveat this by saying that Emergence is an early stage fund. So we invest in mostly Series A, Series B companies. And especially when, when we're looking at Series A, the CEO carries a ton of weight. We are not the type of place that comes in and replaces the CEO. Some later stage funds will do that. We will not. That's not our approach. That would not be the desired outcome for sure. So having complete confidence in the CEO is necessary, but often not sufficient. And it's not that you need to have a fully formed leadership team when you are at the Series A or Series B, but there needs there need to be early signs that you were exceptional at attracting great people. Uh, if you have a co-founder, the co-founder needs to be exceptional, no, because that's also very tough to replace. Right, right. And if you have hired you know, more senior level folks, they don't necessarily need to be the one that will be with you the entire route, but they need to have something special. And the truth is, if as a CEO, your ability to attract and sell and recruit will play a key role in whether or not you make it. And so 
that's kind of why we 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 search for that. It's not so much that we need that VP of marketing to be there for the next 10 years. Is we want to believe you have something special. You have that salesmanship, which in fact is one of the factors that emergence scores you on when you when you pitch us. And that's kind of what we what we look for. Stay up to date with High Alpha, our portfolio companies, and the future of enterprise cloud. Subscribe to our newsletter to get portfolio updates, new company launch information, and the latest content in your inbox every month. Visit highalpha.com slash newsletter to subscribe. That's highalpha.com slash newsletter. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.